we're starting a new preaching series today. First Peter, Exiles Engaged. We just finished up Christians in Culture, and Pastor Kerry and I were talking this week. It kind of really um, connects so very well because First Peter is dealing again with culture. We know that Peter is the author of, of First Peter, the Apostle Peter. We know because he, his very first word in his first verse is that he greets them. Peter acknowledges uh, Sylvanus as the person who actually did the writing, but he is the author. We think back over the Gospels and think about Peter. In his earlier Christian life, he was um, inconsistent, maybe. Might be a good word to use. He, uh, at the same time, though, was a leader. And and I think in all the, the listing of the disciples, Peter is listed first place of prominence. Peter often was the spokesperson for the disciples, and when Jesus Christ asked the disciples, who do you say I am, Peter blurted out quickly, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The problem was, just shortly there down in Matthew 16, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, and die, and then to be raised up three days later. Peter's response, he rebuked Christ. He says, this shall never happen to you. Christ's response to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I think most of us know that Peter denied Jesus Christ three times. And at that point of that Last denial that Christ looked toward Peter, caught his eye. Peter went out and wept bitterly, realizing that he had done what he insisted that he would never do, deny Christ. But Jesus Christ, we see over and over, was very much specifically wanting to restore Peter. When the angel appeared to the women at the tomb, He gave specific instructions to tell Peter of his resurrection. And scriptures mention at least two or three times that Jesus appeared to Peter. At the end of the Gospels, we find that Peter has been forgiven and restored. But evidence of that transformation isn't in the Gospels. We see that, though, in the book of Acts. We see that as he preaches the Word of God and the way he lives. And then we see it uh, in his profound writings in First Peter and in Second Peter. Can you imagine after Peter being so inconsistent and denying Christ, imagine him standing on the day of Pentecost declaring with great power that Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I wonder what happened to his sword. Do you remember the sword that he had? In the Garden of Gethsemane, where he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, I think that that sword was put aside because Peter no longer needed that. His trust was in the sovereign God. He no longer dreaded suffering. He no longer dreaded death. 
when commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ, Peter and the disciples, they were polite, but they refused to stop. And when threatened and released, told not to preach the word, they preached the word. Their prayers were for safety, or rather were not for safety, they were for boldness to preach God's word. But God took Peter, this inconsistent disciple, a man who strongly resisted any kind of suffering, to an apostle who defended suffering, who encouraged the saints to, to not only endure suffering, but to consider their trials a blessing in the plan and purpose of God for them. Before we get into the text, let me answer a couple questions. To whom was it written? Well, verse 1 tells us that it was written to believers in, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Why was it written? Chapter 1, verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have, you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. See, Christianity had spread across the Roman Empire. And it encountered widespread opposition. Why? Because Christians were a direct challenge to the immorality, to the idolatry, to the emperor worship, to paganism. And quickly, Christians began to become social outcasts. Peter refers to criticism of the body of Christ, to insults they received, to social exclusion, being separated from society. The pressure was placed on these believers because they were different. They were different. It was that psychological pressure and physical pressure, that ostracism of being excluded. And then they were like all of us. You add to that pressure, there's that potential, especially for the Gentile believers, to return to their former pagan way of life. There were tensions and inconsistent behavior within the body of Christ. Spiritual doubts about the reality of God and his promises in the future. Of course, Satan was very active and alive then, lying and tempting. When you think about it, when you identify these pressures that these Christians faced, First Peter is very much like the pressures we face. The here and the now. That letter could have been postmarked March of 2019. Peter seeks to encourage the believers as they face day-in, day-out pressure, social ostracism, and hostility to their values, things that make life pretty difficult. He reminds them over and over that suffering is a part of Christian life. I'm going to repeat that. Suffering is a part of Christian life. We don't like suffering. I don't like suffering but God uses it in our lives. Chapter 3, verse 14, Peter says, Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You're blessed. 4.12, Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. As believers faced pressure, suffering, the ostracism, they needed encouragement to live out their faith and to not cave in, not to give in to the world around them. 
Peter wanted them, he wants us today to understand that our faith and our passion for Christ under persecution, under suffering, opens the door for evangelism, opens the door for us to share our faith. No matter what the world says or what some people within the church say, the Christian life is not characterized by comfort, but by warfare and by trials. And yet, in the midst of the suffering, we have hope for a better country. Chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, Christ died for sinners to bring you home safely to God. To bring you home safely to God. With things becoming increasingly hostile to, to believers today in our culture, it's imperative that we know who we are, where we're from, and how to live and to cherish what we've been given. Force of Martyrs, which is an organization that keeps up with Christians around the world that are, that are martyred and persecuted, says that each month 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 churches and properties are destroyed. 722 acts of violence, beatings, rape, Abductions, arrests, forced marriages are committed against Christians. Force of Martyrs also says that about 100 million Christians around the world are facing dire consequences from imprisonment to torture to beheading. We're not facing that, but our culture does hit hard on us at times. And we need to be ready in case something were to change. In these hard times, for us, some of us will be tempted to compromise our faith, what we believe in order to fit in, to avoid arrest. First Peter encourages us to trust God in the midst of suffering. Well, let's look at that text. It's a very short text, but a very important text, a text that's filled with so much and we could probably spend two or three messages at least on this, but we'll go through it today. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. But first we must know who we are. If you look at the Gospels, when, when, when Peter was acting in sinful self, Christ responded to him or called him um, Simon. But when he was walking in the spirit, Christ would call him Peter. You see, he had a new identity. You and I, if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we're a Christ follower, we have a new identity as well. First Peter 1, 1 there, we see that Peter is an apostle. Apostle is a term that the official commission messenger, one who is sent forth, when it's attached here to the phrase, of Jesus Christ is referring to that official 
office of an apostle. Of course, today we don't have apostles. But in a real sense, you and I are official messengers of the Savior. We're the sent ones. Peter knew who he was. This morning, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Peter reminds us, reminded those he initially sent the word to, he reminds us of our relationship to the world. He writes to those who were elect exiles in the dispersion there in Asia Manor. He says, you're elect exiles, strangers, some versions say, sojourners, aliens. See, our home is in heaven. Our values are different from the world, or they should be. So not only are we exiles, but we are elect exiles. Some translations say we are chosen. And the word translated chosen or elect simply means to choose for oneself. And here, God chose for himself. And our election was because of God's foreknowledge. But it doesn't mean that God could look down in the future, which he could, and say, oh, Ralph is going to trust Jesus Christ, so I'm, I'm electing him. That's not, what it's, that's not what the word means at all. For you is, is that, that, um, that love, that choosing someone, not because of anything that we have done, chose us because of his deep love for us. He chose us because, not because we've done anything. He says to these ostracized Christians who were suffering, he says, you're God's elect. You're God's elect. He put you here. He put you where you are for a purpose and for a reason. You're on the front line of what God is doing in the world. Today, maybe some of you are in that rocky situation where there's not much sunshine. And God says he knows what he's doing in your life. He puts you where you are in order to bloom right where you are. And when that bloom finally arrives in your life, people will see that God is able to take the toughest and most hopeless situation and cause people to blossom. We're tied in with knowing who we are in relationship to the world. We need to know where we come from. We must know where we come from. Verse 1, he talks about these pilgrims uh, who were in Asia Minor. Chicago's been my home for over 35 years. You know, occasionally I'll refer to Alabama as home. I've got some dear friends who love to give me a hard time, and they say, Ralph, your home is Chicago. And I say, you know what? You're right. Chicago's been my home for 35 years. Alabama's still home. I was talking to a guy the other day uh, on Facebook, and he had moved away from our home area for about 35, 40 years, and he said, I still consider Sweetwater my home because it's where you were raised up. He says, many, many wonderful memories. Chicago's home. 
I still remember when I came here. I still remember flying in to O'Hare Airport, you know, raised on a farm in Alabama, flying in, and all I saw, it seemed like for miles and miles and miles were lights as I flew in at 10 o'clock. Bill Dillon from ICI picked me up. I remember coming here, I, I, I felt like a foreigner. When I heard English spoken, it was a different accent. It wasn't a southern accent. All around me, Spanish was spoken. The clothes people wore were different. The food was different. The music was different. I felt alone. People were friendly. The food was great. It just wasn't what I was used to. I felt far away from everything that was familiar. I missed that green grass, trees, and those warm southern accents. But, but God says our home is heaven. Philippians 3 says that our true citizenship is in heaven. In Hebrews 11, talking about those heroes of the faith, says that they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. We're strangers in this world, exiles. We're scattered exiles living in a strange land. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this world is not your home. You're not from here. Unfortunately, it's easy, isn't it? Grow our roots deep, deep, deep. And begin to think that this is all there is. And we forget about our real home. We look to possessions and to people and to pleasures to give us satisfaction, but they never satisfy. They never satisfy because we're made for another place. Peter raises this theme at least two more times. Verse 17 of chapter 1, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The New Living Translation says, conduct yourselves during your time as temporary residents. NIV, as foreigners. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. We see that mindset of, of being a pilgrim, being a sojourner, being a stranger. As we think about it, we don't have to travel out of the country to, to feel like a stranger. When we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and begin to, to live for him, people look at you and think, maybe you're a little bit odd. I still remember when I came to faith in Christ from the drugs and from the alcohol, all my drinking buddies thought I'd kind of lost it. And they would say, don't you want, don't you want a beer? Um, Ralph, let's go smoke some pot. You know, and I would say, no, no. They'd look at me like, you're strange, Ralph. You're strange. And, and, and they said as much as that. When we put our faith in Christ, when we seek to live for him, people see us as different. When you say no, the Bears game on Sunday. And I'm not saying you can't go to a Bears game, Bears game sometimes on Sunday. 
But, but when you say no to a Bears game, so you can go to church, your friends are going to think, he stepped off on the deep end. If you decide to be faithful to your spouse because you come to Christ, you're a resident alien. And if you're a teenager going to school and you seek to live for Jesus, you're a stranger and you're strange. First Peter is an encouraging word for us as exiles, as foreigners, as temporary residents of this world. We've been pushed to the margins of society. Peter says to the believers who are scattered by God, and the word dispersion means um, scattering. God's people have been, have been then dispersed. They've been scattered out. The same thing is true today, isn't it? God scatters his people where he wants them so they can be on mission doing what he has called us to do. God has his people in Chicago and in New York, in L.A. and in Dallas. He has his people in Naples, Italy, and in Naples, Florida. He has his people in St. Pete, Florida, in St. Petersburg, Russia. He has his people in, on the island of Granada. He has his people in Granada, Spain. He has his people in Birmingham, Alabama. He has his people in Birmingham, England. I could go on. You see, God has his people everywhere. And God says, you're there for purpose. I put you there to glorify me. Bloom where you are. God says, that's my favorite town for you. My favorite place for you. I remember years ago, Chris and I were going through struggles, and we were like ready to, to move on to a different ministry. This was even before we were at Good News on South. And God just said, no. No. You're here for a reason. That was a long time ago. We've been here for 36, 37 years. See, God places us where he wants us. He wants us to bloom. Do you remember in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, the believers were told to take the gospel from Jerusalem into Samaria and Judea and the other parts of the world? They didn't do very well on their assignment. So we see in chapter 8 of Acts, verse 1, we read that God sent persecution, pushed him out. So they would be on mission. And it says that they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. And verse 4 says that these strangers, these exiles, uh, went everywhere preaching the gospel. You see, God had to move them. First, you and I need to know who we are in relationship to the world. We're exiles. Secondly, Peter reminds us of who we are in our relationship with God. And in the process, we see the Trinity and how the Trinity is involved in our salvation. In verse 2, that talks about the elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and obedience to Jesus Christ, sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. First, we see that we're chosen by God the Father, elect. 
Secondly, we're called by the Holy Spirit, sanctified. And third, we're chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. So we see the Father, we see the Son, we see the Holy Spirit. These believers, they were scattered, dispersed. They were selected by God, the Father, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Sometimes as we look at the words elect and foreknowledge, people kind of get uneasy. We shouldn't be uncomfortable with, with those words. If you're saved, it's important to know that in the midst of all that's going on, that God chose you before the foundation of the world to live for him, for your sovereign place. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy, blameless. We don't have time today to, to go deep into the doctrine of election and human responsibility, but they're not contradictory. They're complementary. God sovereignly selects, elects, chooses, and we're responsible to respond. Virgin, that great preacher of the past, was asked one time, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty with human responsibility? Virgin responded, I wouldn't try. I never try to reconcile friends. Jesus put these two friends together in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's the election. And whoever comes to me, that's human responsibility, I'll never cast out. Two verses in Acts 13, we see these again. Verse 39, everyone who believes is justified. That's human response. Verse 48, all who were chosen for eternal life, that's divine election, become believers. They go together, complementary. Well, these believers were scattered. They were selected by God. Chosen, elected, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And to be sanctified is to be set apart for God's exclusive use. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes us holy. He convicts us of sin. He brings us to Jesus Christ. He's the source of all our spiritual growth. His work begins before we even come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he continues until we get to heaven. He completes it when we're finally glorified God the Father's presence. No one is ever saved apart from the Holy Spirit. My salvation didn't start with me, and neither did yours. It started with God's work in my life. I didn't choose him. He chose me. God always makes the first move. He's always the initiator. Salvation is of the Lord. Well, we must know who we are, first, in regard to the world. Secondly, Peter reminds us who we are in relationship to God. We're the elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And third, we learn our purpose for being chosen and sanctified is for obedience to Jesus Christ. 
and for the sprinkling of his blood. That's the purpose why we were chosen, to be obedient. This concept of being sprinkled with the blood goes back to the Old Testament. You can go back in your mind to the Old Testament when God was dealing with, with the nation of Israel, when they, when they did the, the Old Covenant, was filled with a ritual in which the people were sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice. In the same way as followers of Jesus Christ, we can be regarded as being dedicated to God by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Let me read you the, the passage in Exodus about the Old Covenant where Israel and, and the Lord agreed. It says, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, We'll do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. So here's the idea. The blood had to personally be applied in order for the covenant to be sealed. And when Israel promised to obey all that God said, Moses took the blood of several bulls and sprinkled it on the assembly they had gathered together. The sprinkling of the blood meant that they were personally entering into the covenant. They had heard it, they had agreed to obey, and now by the blood they were entering into that covenant. And to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus means we believe the gospel be saved. It means that the blood of Jesus Christ is personally applied to your life. It's a very personal application. We aren't saved if we're children in a Christian family by our mom and dad's faith. It must personally be applied. One can attend Good News Bible Church for 40 years or 50 years if we were around that long and still be lost. It's one thing to say that Jesus Christ died on a cross. It's another thing to say that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins. It's a totally different thing to say that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my, for my sin. If the blood of Jesus Christ has never been sprinkled on you through faith in Jesus Christ, you have no part of it. Make sure today that the blood of Jesus shed on the cross has been applied to your life through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Well, we go through trials, go through troubles. We need to know who we are. And we're reminded of our relationship with the world. We're, we're exiles. We're strangers. We're foreigners. We're, we're sojourners. Secondly, Peter reminds us of our relationship with God. We're chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of blood. And third, we must know what we've been given. We must know what we've been given, Christ. Look at that, that last phrase there in verse 2. Grace to you and peace multiplied. Grace, 
to you and peace multiplied. Grace. Grace is mentioned at least ten times in the book of 1 Peter. It's mentioned in every chapter. Grace. Grace means gift. Salvation is that unmerited favor poured out on people just like you and me. Grace. We're saved by grace. Grace. Grace we live by. Grace. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we're reconciled to God and we have peace with him. The Bible says that that before coming to faith in Christ, that we're God's enemies because of our sins. And it's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that our response to his, and our response to his grace, we have peace with God. This morning, do you have peace with God? Do you have peace? We're enemies until we put our faith and trust in Christ. Have you noticed as we go through hardship and suffering and struggles, we realize our need for grace, our need for his peace. Peter wants us to know that that grace and peace is multiplied to us. It is greatly increased. It is maximum measure peace and grace. Christianity always grows when it's under attack. God's grace and peace are multiplied when we're a mess. The question today for you and for me is, is it enough to have Jesus? Is Jesus enough for you even if it makes you an exile? Is being in God's family enough for you? Or do you need the world also? If you're a believer, and you see yourself scattered in this community, share the gospel, I want you to decide to share with someone that you know this week. It could be a neighbor. It could be a family member. It could be a coworker. I want you, in your mind, to come up with one person right now. Put that name, so to speak, in your head that face on that screen of your mind, and then pray and ask God for his grace to initiate a conversation. We're here where we are to live out the gospel and to share it. Secondly, live out your conviction so that you stand out as an exile, even in the midst of hardship, even as an alien in this world. And if you've been compromising, determine to be a person of conviction. Don't be afraid to be in exile. If you become caustic, try to become more compassionate. What's one thing that you can do? What is one thing that God wants you to start doing? And then third, here's the thought about home. I have three homes, not buildings. I have three homes. Two are temporary. One is permanent. My home, first, Chicago. It's temporary. My home, 
in Alabama. It's there. I've been away for 35, 36, 37 years. But that little rural community is still home. I love to go there. I love the people. There's a connection. You know what? My real home? Heaven. My real home? Heaven. Do you have a home there? Your home in heaven? I mean, really, is your home in heaven? Have you responded to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have the peace of God in your life in the midst of struggles? If you never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you today, take that first step. Spoken before the Lord, admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And then reach out and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. And then we'll have a home in heaven. First Peter is a, such a powerful book. I look forward to us going through it. I think it's so important that we begin by realizing all that we have in Christ, all the blessings. We pray if the prayer counselors would come up. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to think about what I said. Is there someone that you need to share the gospel with? Is there something that you need to do in your life? Are, there, are your convictions not being lived out? If you've never put your faith in Christ, I encourage you. Let's pray.